0: It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element
1: FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in one of those two coordinates, as well as ELMNT-FM, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show... We have with us National Chief Elmer St. Pierre of the Congress of Aboriginal People. We have Lorraine Whitman, the President of the Native Women's Association of Canada, as well as the Vice Chief uh, of the Congress of Aboriginal Peoples, Kim Bowden. Thank you all for joining us.
2: Thank
1: you. Well, thanks. Our topic here on the show today is the treatment of First Nation, Métis, and Inuit people in the healthcare system, and in particular, the tragic and racist incident at the hospital in Joliet, Quebec. September 28th is when uh, Joyce Echewan was uh, went into the hospital. And that quickly became a, a situation that went viral when she posted her uh, the, the video of, her, of herself uh, in the hospital trying to get treatment in, in Joliet, Quebec. Uh, Lorraine, would you like to, to begin with, uh, with, with uh, bringing us up to date on that?
0: Yeah, first of all, I, I do give my condolence to her family mm-hmm. and her community. But, you know, we're here because of the horrific facts of Joyce Eshkorn. Yes. You know, her final hours, um, knowing knowing that she did video, um, you know, at the very end. Mm-hmm. But it raised so many alarms about racism in the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. We know it exists. Um, but this video... Um, that she did live it certainly woke the government up they're now starting to do something and i feel there's much more that needs to be done within you know the systemic racism and discrimination within the the health system um you know i know the government uh you know, with, with the shootings, um, with the RCMP, mm. I know that, you know, they're going in reviewing there to see how it, they can better it. And I do feel that with the healthcare system, um, it's going to force them to review um, the systemic racism that exists within as well.
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, of course, when the the video and this story about Joyce uh, Eshwan uh, came to our attention, it did shine the light on the healthcare system, specifically at Quebec, uh, at this time because of where it took place. Uh, National Chief Elmer, uh, would you care to jump in on that?
3: Lorraine is exactly right. Uh, you know, it, this has been going on for years and years, and, and you know, it's, it's sad to say, but thank God that Joyce had the the courage mm. to uh, do that uh, video, like. And it's sad for the family to, you know, see this video Mm. and, you know, basically minutes or I'm not quite sure how, how long afterwards, but she pretty much videotaped her, her own death. And we have nurses and and interns and standing there laughing at her and, and, you know, uh, taunting her and and calling her names. And, you know, she's only good to have babies and Mm. whatnot. Like then find out that, you know, yes, the hospital fired one or two of them, but, you know, to me that's not justice for, for that family. And, and uh, so, you know, and, and with the, the two that was fired, like, yes, they got fired from their job, but you know, their life goes on. Like as far as I'm, when, when people, when medical people start doing this to <laughs> our people, there should be more done to it not just getting fired. They should lose their license as far as I'm concerned. Like it's just, just the way it should be. It, because you got uh, a husband and you got seven uh kids. You know, those kids gotta grow now without a mom. Mm-hmm. And our 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 mothers are women. They're they're the keepers. They're our keepers. Mm. They give us life and they look after our water and they you know, they, they should have more respect. Mm.
1: Uh, uh, Lorraine, the uh, minister's meeting that uh, that you were at, what can you tell us about that?
0: I didn't have a voice there, but I truly uh, wish that we would have had more of a voice. Um, because in order to see any success, to see any change, you certainly need to bring in the Indigenous people, um, you know, our needs, we know what we need. And in order for change, it needs to be led by the Indigenous for the Indigenous. And we can't not let that out of our reach. And I concur, you know, with the chief in saying that, you know, um, there needs to be more respect, more understanding. And yes, there were two, you know, nurses, um you know, that were fired. But you know what, how many more in the hospital? And that's only one hospital. How many more are there that have that same attitude? So I feel that, you know, in doing this, we need to train. We need to recruit more of Indigenous staffs in all levels of the healthcare. Um, you know, we need to provide them more cultural training. Um, and the history of what's, you know, what's happening to our people, our health. Um, And we need to incorporate these traditional indigenous healing methods into these Western modern uh, days of healthcare, Um, you know, and and I strongly support and starting to implement the calls for justice from the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls, and Gender Diverse, as well as the calls of the Action of the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission, you know, they relate to health and something needs to be done. And this is atrocious what happened, you know, the treatment that Joyce has gotten. And it still affects me today knowing that, you know, and being a mother, um, knowing that these seven young children, um, having a mother and her, you know, her husband, her partner living without, you know, his wife. And those last minutes, we would hope, that we would have comforting of someone by our bedside if we're passing on or really sick. But with Joyce, you know, I find her the hero and how she came to have the strength to be able to let the world know what's happening and, and to her, you know, th- this will not go without pain. We will continue to persevere for her and her family and indigenous people, you know, all over the of the country, the world, um, and it has to stop. It has to stop, and it will only stop with the collective and and political government goodwill to say no more.
1: Yes, there's a few things in there that you you mentioned, and that the chief mentioned as well. And I, I want to get to the vice chief as well. However. Can I just go back to the, the the meeting? You said you weren't allowed to speak at the ministers' meeting. Who did speak?
3: Yeah, the Assembly of First Nation, Barry uh, Belgard. Uh, right. There was the Inuit uh, chief. Okay, and there was also the uh, MNC uh, spokesperson mm. uh, from Alberta. Right. And this brings us back again uh, with Lorraine and 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 Cap, the the Native women. Mm. Is that four years ago we. Four maybe five years ago, we used to sit at the same tables as those three that I just mentioned with the minister and with the first ministers. Somewhere along the line, we got left out. We 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 got basically kicked off the tables. And I and I say kicked off because that's exactly what, what it was. And now when it comes to interviews and, and minister meeting, we're kind of like a Johnny come lately. Uh we got to almost force ourselves to say, listen, we wanna sit there, we wanna be there, We want to hear this. It's a shame that when they say at one point there, there was five national inter, uh, uh, Indigenous people or organizations, and and here we are now we're down to three. It's not fair to to, to the native women and mm-hmm. and of all people the native women. Like my God, like you know what's wrong with Trudeau and the other three groups? Like in Aboriginal life, we we treat our women with honor, mm. and and that's the way it should be. And and if anybody when they kicked us off. I would have, would have assumed that the women would have still been there, but unfortunately it's not.
1: One thing that, that you both mentioned uh, in previously was about the children and about the fact that they, one, will grow up without their mother, but the other thing that they have to also live with is, of course, uh, knowing how their mother died and knowing how she was treated and knowing that she videotaped this. Uh, that in itself would be very traumatic for these children to... to Live with,
4: I just wanted to add though that where we get going here is the uh i mean i'm my prayers are sent out to the family of Joyce. Mm. I saw the interview with her husband it was very uh, moving um, going back though to what uh, the chief and and uh, President Whitman was saying is that we've only scratched the surface in terms of how our people are treated in the health system itself, and I mean I have Uh, first-hand knowledge of people who went through the health system and who've died two days later because they didn't get the care. They were turned away from the hospital. Uh, Then you want to – the other issue is mental health as well. I mean, people get turned away from that as well, end up on the street and banned for life from a mental health facility. So we have a lot of things to say. The majority of our people live off-reserve. I mean, one one really clear example of that is, of course, is the forced sterilization of women in Saskatchewan. Mm. Uh, that's another big issue. Again, the health system is part of that. So these are the kind of things that need to be brought to the table. Uh, I know that CAP, for example, hasn't been at the table since 2006 in terms of our relationship with Health Canada itself. So, yeah, I mean, those are the kind of steps that they need or that they do to keep CAP out. You know, all these reports that we get, Royal Commission on Indigenous people or Aboriginal people, all these reports just collect dust. You don't need to ask Indigenous people any further about the issues, what's going on, because we know.
1: You know, with this systemic racism uh, and the way the treatment of Indigenous uh, people in hospitals, as it was pointed out from the video uh, that Joyce made of herself as she was dying, it's hard to ignore a video like that. And, of course, it does point to these other things that you're all bringing up and that we all heard about that these have been going on for, for some time. Uh, Lorraine, you mentioned earlier, I think, that, that cultural training uh, has to take place. Yes. The other thing with that, though, is that with any training, um, it's good, but there also needs to be a willingness. How, how do you all feel about that 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 if the training is implemented, that there will be a willingness.
0: Um, in answering that, I think it's a necessity. People need to be trained, they need to be open, and we need to be transparent in what's happening in our health system. Many people don't know Mm. what the indigenous people are going through. So that willingness needs to be there. It's part of the education component, whether they're going to university, into Mm. the health field, or what have you. But it needs to go into it, and we also need, with our wellness, we've seen Chantel Moore, a health check, and she was shot down. Mm. by an officer who was able to apparently be able to de-escalate any of this. Um, And for anyone who has, you know, any um, mental health issues, if you have um, at 2.30 in the morning someone knocking at your door and your window in a uniform coming at you, um, I can't even fathom how they would feel inside in the adrenaline. Mm. So they need to be properly trained as well. Um, you know, with the health field, and that's part of the health field. So the willingness has to be there. The government has to implement it, and they have to open those doors. And we're here to help We're not the enemy. We are. We want an ally. We don't want just a partnership because a partnership isn't equal here. We see that on some of these Zoom meetings that we've been on. We haven't been able to give our voice because we do represent other people that aren't with AFN or what have you. We still represent and our voices are just as important and our lives are just as important and we need to be able to have that out there.
1: You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM and then listen on your device of choice, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, It's a pleasure to have with me here on the show the National Chief of the Congress of Aboriginal Peoples, uh, Chief Elmer St. Pierre, as well as the Vice-Chief Kim Bowden and Lorraine Whitman, and she is the president of the Native Women's Association of Canada. And we're talking about the treatment of First Nation, Métis and Inuit people in the healthcare system. And we, of course, started with the the incident, the tragic incident in uh, Joliet, Quebec, with systemic racism now on the table and being looked at. And certainly, Lorraine, uh, Chief, you brought this up as well about uh, women should be at the table, Indigenous women should be represented, they should have a voice, for sure. The Premier of Quebec, uh, François Legault, he, he did come out and uh, apologize uh, for her, her death, but he also started, I understand, by saying that, that he denied that, that this incident represented an, a, an example of systemic racism in the province.
3: Well, if that, that incident, if, it, if, it, if that wasn't racism, then I don't know what is. The, the video speaks for itself. Like, and if he's that blind that he can't see that, then there's definitely something wrong. You know, those, those, that family should be taken care of for the rest of their life. Mm. And, the, and the Quebec government, the hospitals, whatever, should be right there firsthand to help those, that family out. As Like I said, for the rest of their lives, because they lost mom. Mm. If that ever happened to my family, any, any part of my family, somebody would be paying and paying dearly. And, and it just, like I said, that video speaks for itself, and if, if the government and the hospitals can't see that, uh, the way that uh, video played out, then there is something wrong with their eyesight and their head.
1: Uh, Chief, you make a, a, an interesting point there about, you know, the family being taken care of and that and that something should be done about that, uh, given the nature of how she passed away and, and the trauma that the family would be, uh, of course, suffering from this. Uh, who would stand up for the family? Who should come forward to put that forward?
4: Well, it should be the province of, of Quebec. Um, I want to say though that, in terms of the relationship with Indigenous people in the province of Quebec, they have a very difficult time to e- even acknowledge that Indigenous people exist in that pro- in, in Quebec, as well as uh, uh, Métis people, mm. and that's why he made that comment. If anybody needs to be educated, it'd be the premier. Mm-hmm. Of Quebec, as well as cabinet, maybe all the uh i'm not sure what the term they use in in quebec the uh the provincial uh uh representatives but they need to be educated but what i find they're like <laughs> my experiences again with quebec is is uh is un- unbelievable i mean i i really that really jumps out to me they just do not recognize it and uh this issue that popped up that's why they would make a comment like that their heads are collectively buried in the sand and uh there's a lot of work to do with the province of Quebec and one thing too it doesn't seem to matter what party is elected there it seems to be a common denominator amongst all provincial government officials and and uh elected people the same thing indigenous people just don't seem to exist
1: yes uh, i think that's something that uh, has been has been raised before and pointed out before Uh, Lorraine, just wondering, though, about the voice of women and and getting a voice for women and and why women are not being allowed to speak or have a voice uh, when it pertains directly to uh, uh, women's treatment.
0: Um, You know, in in saying that, Dave, in February 1st, 2019, we had signed um, an accord with the with the, um, the Crown. And that was where we were to be able to sit at the tables with the provincial, the federal, and the territorial. Unfortunately, this isn't happening. Um, You know, it's almost cherry picking whatever we go in. But it's the important issues that are so important. And I am very compassionate for our women, our girls, and our two LGBTQIA people. Um, You know, we need to be there because We and when we talk about systemic racism and discrimination, as both chiefs and you know, vice chief have mentioned, we are talking about a system, it's a colonial system that has made us where we are today. And there's repatriation that should be given to our people. There has been no dollars given, I think they forget to, you know. Um, to even look into that issue because it's such a, a big issue. But when we look at this and, and what the, um, you know, in Quebec, what he stated that there there was no systemic racism, I can't believe that. I just thought, oh, my God, what have you just seen on the video? Mm-hmm. Our lives as Indigenous people are just as important as any other life. And our expectancy of Indigenous people are less than non-Indigenous people because of the care that is not given to us in the health system or any other, the other system, let alone get into the child care system, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the justice system. It's the whole system. We have been put into an envelope, a system that does not work for us Indigenous people. It never has and it's not going to, and it's only getting worse. And for the government to say that, they also need training um, and awareness to let them know that it exists. And for that to go out, um, it really, um, it was really heart wrenching and hard to take because of Joyce and her family. You tell their family that it doesn't exist after they lost their mother and they've seen the video and the world's seen the video. So how can that, how can, um, you know, he even make such a statement? And we know with that $94 million national inquiry, it stated that the findings stated that it was a genocide. And this is what's continuing today is a genocide. Um, Let a spade be a spade, but it is a genocide. And we need to deal with that. The sooner that we, you know, we have the government's, true will to be able to deal with that then will we be able to move on and stop what's happening because our lives are important as well
1: so how do we then approach this and how do we deal with it and how do we get that will moving forward because it seems that you know yes the government has to has to step up but what about the the Canadian people themselves? What about the Canadian non indigenous population? What is their what is their responsibility here? Do you think, uh, Chief Elmer?
3: In, in reality, they, sh- they should support the the first the, uh, Aboriginal people. Like you know, if you go back in history, we're the first people here, or our ancestors were here, and anything that you know. With my own community, whatever whatever we do, we always invite the the non Aboriginal people. That you know, you know, thank God the Kingston area is very friendly to the native people, and that and, and we intermingle to, with one another with no problems. But you know, I, again, like uh, Lorraine said, there, there's got to be a lot of learning and teaching because I think I think a lot of this is uh, like you said, and there's a lot of uh, you know, it's sad to say to, you know, you watch TV and, uh, you, with the old shows with the Cowboys and Indians and, well, who, who is the bad guys? It's the Indians because the, the way, uh, they portray us on, mm. on T even on TV, mm. how, how we can do it. And, and, and what, uh, the Canadian people can do the, the non-Aboriginal people that, you know, it's going to have to be up to them. I, I really feel for uh, Lorraine because, uh, when we come down to the missing women in in that is how can the government with their, their, their three Aboriginal parties that sit with them, how can they make a decision what the women have to do and what, what, what has to be done in the country to help the women out? Because the three, the three that sit on that, with the table, with the minister, they're all men and the, It just to me it seems those three, that three, even the minister, they have no respect for women, as far as our our native women, and uh, you know it appalls me that we got three aboriginal leaders that don't know enough to say no, no, no. We got to bring in the native women. Mm. We we got to get hear their voices, and not like do a Johnny Come Lately. You say, well, here's how much money we're going to get. You know, you know, end of story. We don't have no input of how it's going to operate. Right. That's not the way it should be.
1: All right, uh, Kim, do you wanna pipe in for something there?
4: Uh yes, I just want to say that um the system itself, you know, in terms of uh I'm gonna call them the gatekeepers. And when you when you uh mentioned earlier that um whether Canadians should have a responsibility, they, they should. These people that are in these these positions across Canada, they can make a difference. And uh they can actually uh, address these issues that we're dealing with in Canada. And, and um, yeah, I mean, they can make a huge difference, but whether the political will is there, I'm not sure. I mean, after, you know, observing that conversation that we had there um, with all the, I guess, I think it was like 300 people that were on that uh, conference call or the uh, zoom call where we couldn't say anything where we were observers to listen to the stories of the, the uh, people that were educated through the health system, doctors and nurses, and they were quite disturbing. It really bugged me, bothered me that um, uh, what they went through in terms of just to become a doctor or a nurse, in terms of the racism that they had to put up with, the systemic racism, is unbelievable. Mm. You know, the whole system itself. So it's going to take some work to, to knock those barriers down. So, yeah. They can make a difference.
1: Okay. Thank you. Uh, Lorraine, we're going to pass it over to you with the last word. We're, we're running out of time here, but we have a few minutes left. Um, the idea, uh, of women and, uh, you know, some of the things that have been brought up. And of course, we're focusing and we started with the, the story of Joyce Ekjuan and, and her unfortunate and, and tragic death. But there are other issues that have been pointed out as well. There's missing and murdered Indigenous women, and that's been going on for a long time, and that continues to go on. And the sterilization issue that was brought up, I think that Kim brought up as well. There's other things that that keep going on that that all point to what looks like systemic issues. As the, the president of the Native Women's Association of Canada, what has to be done?
0: Um, you know, there's a lot of education. There has to be a revamp, you know, of the government system and what have you. It's not working for us as Indigenous people. And like I said, we were supposed to have a national action plan, June 3rd, um, you know, the anniversary date. That never materialized. COVID, yes, I understand. That's changed our lives. But there was nine strong months. Something could have materialized out of it. We as um Uh, In WAC, our national, we did have a roundtable in January, suggestions, whatever, from the roundtable of all the provinces and the territories of the women that came. Some grassroots, some PTMAs, presidents of their local um, uh, province were there. Suggestions were given to the minister, but they weren't acknowledged or recognized. It should have been because June 4th, the day after this action plan should have been materialized and was promised chantel moore was Mm. shot down Mm. i mean honest to god my heart goes out for all of these women and when i hear we just had the vigil not too long ago october 4th Mm. and to hear the women you know you never get over that (laughs) i don't get over it and you know we need to be able to we are the matrilinical lineage um, You know, that has been taken away from us for hundreds of years since yeah. colonialism. We need to recognize the position that our elders, our knowledge keepers and our women, how they stand in society and to be respected and appreciated. And we're only here to be able to help our people, not to discredit our men or any other organization. We want to be involved so that we're part of the solution. You know, it's been stated, take the Indian out of the child. Mm. It's the Indian, that's the problem. We aren't the problem. We never were, we never will be. We're part of the solution. So include us at the table so that we can be um, there and have a solution. And let's work together. Again, I only say as ally because partnership is not working. Mm. It's not an equal base. In an ally, we are. We work together. So I think that, you know, in that way, we need to truly work together, uh, be open and transparent and work together as a unit and collaboratively.
1: Okay. Well, we'll have to leave it there, but I I certainly have enjoyed having you all on the show. Unfortunately, due to the topic, it's not a pleasant topic where we are addressing. And certainly uh, as you all pointed out at the top of the show, our condolences go out to the family of Joyce Etchquan and and what they have to deal with. Thank you, Chimiguetch uh, Nyawa, for taking the time to join us on Moment of Truth and and take part in the program.
0: Okay, well, Alan, thank you.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you, David. You bet. They're the voices of the National Chief, uh, Elmer St. Pierre, of the Congress of Aboriginal Peoples, as well as the Vice Chief, uh, Kim Bowden and uh, Lorraine Whitman, the President of the Native Women's Association of Canada. They've been my guests here on Moment of Truth. Don't go away. We'll be right back with more right here on Element FM.
2: Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses.
0: Element, Element, Element FM.
1: Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates, as well as E L M N T F M, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show Michael Coyle. He's an Indigenous law expert uh, and uh, law professor at the University of Western Ontario. And, um, and, Michael, you've had, I guess, some history with the situation that has developed in Six Nations. We all know about the ongoing situation right now known as Mackenzie Meadows, where housing development is is trying to be built. This sounds very, very, of course, similar to a situation that took place back in 2006, uh, known as the Douglas Creek Estates. A protest took place, a standoff, the roads were blocked. It became quite an international event. Um, and I believe you were actually uh, hired by Jim Prentice to to come in and and uh, look at this situation as a mediator.
2: Yes, I was asked uh, by the minister to uh, see if I could sort out the conflicting views of the various participants: protesters, Confederacy chiefs, elected council, Ontario, Canada. Uh, the owner of the housing development, et cetera. So I was asked to report on what their perspectives were, um, to identify the the implications in terms of federal and provincial responsibility for addressing their grievances, and then to explore the possibility of mediating uh, an enduring uh, solution
1: were you familiar with the six nations territory and or their um their Haldimand tract prior to getting involved
2: yes i was formerly uh the senior counsel to a body called the indian commission of ontario um where i'd worked from 1989 to 2000 and there my job was to be the director of land claims mediations um and so i had done a fair bit of work um various Six Nations issues, so I was well aware of the uh, the land claims, um, and I suppose that's one of the reasons why I was chosen, that I knew the, the different parties and the kind of background of the issues. Speaking of that
1: background and Six Nations, if you were, you were uh, uh, as you say, involved with some of the land claims, uh, Six Nations has, has had some ongoing land claim issues and uh, t- taken the government to court to try to get some movement and get some some of these things resolved. Um, how big of of an issue was that in terms of trying to deal with the immediate one that was faced with Douglas Creek Estates at that time?
2: Um, I, I think it's fair to say that it, it was driving um, the, the underlying bigger picture um, and the frustration and the, the length of time it was taking to be resolved um, was one of the main drivers of the conflict back in 2006. Um, six nations had been protesting about the dealings with their lands. They originally had um, more than 900,000 acres of land along the Grand River, six miles each side of the Grand River um, from 1784. Um, but by uh, 2000, they were left with uh, something like a bit more than 40,000 acres, so less than 5% of their original land base. And since the 1800s, Six Nations uh chiefs had been petitioning um about injustices. They 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 argued um they were suffering. That is, their lands were being occupied without being paid for, um monies they alleged were being taken without um without their consent from their their bank account. Um and those those petitions and claims had gone nowhere. Um, Six Nations even brought one of their claims to the League of Nations, their claim to, um, self-determination, um, in the early 1920s, uh, but got nowhere there. And so since, more recently, since the 1980s, Six Nations had filed a, a number of land claims under the federal government's policy for dealing with land, land rights. Um, I forget the exact number, but it was something like, um, well, more than twenty, twenty-eight claims mm-hmm. I guess have been filed, and by nineteen ninety-five, none of them had been um, none of them had been settled. So, uh, six nations then in nineteen ninety-five brought a lawsuit against Canada and Ontario to try to address them, um, and <clears throat> that that lawsuit still hasn't gone to trial. I understand it's going to go to trial next year, but that's kind of the bigger backdrop of uh, an issue that. Um, People at Six Nations feel it hadn't, hadn't been taken seriously. Now the government of Canada and Ontario both take the position that they, uh, at least initially, they took the position that they owe nothing to Six Nations. So you had this festering conflict for that had lasted more than a hundred years. You know that mm. Um, mm. people were getting frustrated. Then
1: when you when you mention the time frame of just this one uh, taking the, the the government to, to to court in 1995 that initiated and it still hasn't gone to trial. When you hear that time of a, a time frame around this, is that surprising? Is this is this unusual for something to take this long to get to trial? Is this normal in the courts? I, I don't know. No,
2: it's, it's not usual. Um, there are some challenges in in this case, um, and, and we can talk about that. Obviously, it goes over a lot of history. Mm. You know. And it goes over some complicated law, who's responsible for claim you know if lands were taken from six nations before confederation um, who's responsible for that in law Canada or the provincial government um, and so there's some complications, but no, that's a very very long time um, it, it after ten years it took the first ten years um, was a lot of wrangling about um what documents parties could access and whether the federal government had any any responsibility etc so there were lots of what are called motions that uh, were, were floating around um and then in 2004 they eventually agreed to try another um, a small process to resolve some of the land claims in the lawsuit and the litigation was put into um in abeyance which was postponed for a while mm. um, but they're not having been um a settlement of most of Six Nations' claims still, um, I understand that that lawsuit is back on the table and they expect to go to trial next year.
1: Mm. Now, uh, I also understand that in, in, I think in 1995, when when, uh, the Six Nations decided to take them to court, um, the government, I think, either pulled out or stopped paying for certain things at that time because of the action that was taken by Six Nations. Are you familiar with that?
2: Um, I'm not familiar with what happened exactly at Six Nations on that, but there was a um, federal government policy for a long time. It may still be their policy that once, if a First Nation uh, uh, or Indigenous people is upset about progress in a negotiation or lack of progress and takes the government to court, they would immediately cease all negotiation funding. And actually, now that I recall, that Mm. did happen in Six Nations had to lay off all of their land claims team, yes. all the people who had been researching these claims once they brought the lawsuit. Right. Okay. I mean, let me just explain if, if you don't mind just the kind of claims that there are. Sure. Six Nations had put together a team um, that looked at thousands of parcels of land over the previous more than hundred years and knew or had a record of every parcel and whether they received money for that land or whether they didn't whether they received less than the fair market value um, if they agreed to lease or mortgage lands whether they the record showed that six nations had ever been paid so the, there are a whole number of these these claims relating to lands throughout the Grand river area um, and trying to deal with thousands and thousands of parcels of land it, you know, would be a bit complicated, um, to try to work out at, around a negotiation table. So they did something quite interesting in their lawsuit. The lawsuit didn't, uh, the lawsuit simply asked the Crown, the federal and provincial governments, to account for how they had managed Six Nations territory from 1784 on. Federal government, you might know, is a trustee. They, they actually have the title to reserve lands in Canada under Canadian mm-hmm. law right now. Um, and so, as a trustee, uh, Canada was being asked and and Ontario as well uh, by six nations, well, you just show us you, you prove to us that you paid for these lands that we consented for all of these lands to be um, taken out of our land base and that's um, that 's the lawsuit it 's quite a um, an important one in the sense of the onus of proof in that kind of lawsuit normally is on the defendant the crown or a trustee ordinarily like your bank has the onus of proof of showing that they dealt with your money properly in your bank account. Mm. That's the kind of claim that they're bringing now. And that is the kind of that's, that's similar to the suggestion I made to the federal government Mm. um, at the end of my, my, um, my investigation in 2006, which is, it seems to me that this is only going to be able to be resolved if we look at all of the claims together and the government, each government, looks at all of those claims and says, well, what are our responsibilities in light of all of this? What do we think we owe in terms of whether we owe money, whether there's lands that have been wrongly taken? And then let's sit around the table and try to find a creative way, the three groups, Six Nations, Ontario and Canada, let's try to find a creative way of um, fulfilling If all parties can agree that there are at least some obligations outstanding and can agree on roughly a ballpark of of where they are, then um, how how can we uh, address those creatively today? Are there, um, you know, what kind of solutions in terms of um, uh, payments, schedules, uh, ability to, uh, you know, permissions to acquire lands and add to reserve, et cetera, what could be done? That was the general, um, my general sense after after looking at the mm. situation was that it was, it, we would be here for hundreds of years, we will be here for hundreds of years if every one of these parcels or every one of these claims is is negotiated separately.
1: Mm, right. You had mentioned 1924 as well, and I, when you say the parties to sit down, the three parties, the Ontario, the the, the Federal, as well as the Six Nations, there's uh, the six nations as you, i'm sure you're aware uh, has a governance of of two uh two two governance they have the elected council the, which uh was brought in 1924 but there's also the Haudenosaunee confederacy chiefs the traditional uh council and that is, is has i guess been somewhat of a complication for dealing with the community um because even going back to the Douglas Creek Estates um it was the the clan mothers i believe that took took the lead in that situation and um i'm not sure that people understand the the the, the governance situation on Six Nations and i'm not sure how that plays out moving forward in terms of the dealings because they're there is that, that breakdown to some degree within this, the community of the elected council is, is sort of seen as this government arm, the administrative arm. The, the put in Sony Confederacy Chief Council, the traditional arm of the community, of course, is, is seen by many in the community as, uh, though, as, as looking after land. It's one of the things that they, they say they, they should be looking after. Yeah. How has that impacted these discussions?
2: Well, it's, uh, it it makes things, um, more complicated for sure. Um, so I've mentioned that, uh, one complication is that on the government side, you have two different governments, each of which, um, have different views on their responsibilities, um, to address Six Nations claims. And as you've said, at Six Nations, because the RCMP forcibly, um, ejected their, the, Government of Six Nations, the Confederacy Council from the Longhouse, um, that has left a, a division, a splinter within Six Nations ever since. Um, uh, there are those, as you say, who believe that the government imposed system of elections every two years, according to Indian Act rules, um, is foreign to Six Nations you know, tradition of government and illegitimate. And then there were those in the community who think, well um, the, uh, the elected council is trying to work with uh, the situation and and trying to use his budget to assist uh, in resolving things so this was one of the <coughs> i 'm sorry the the main issues that I had to deal with um, and that anybody would have to deal with, but most importantly, the six nations has to deal with mm-hmm. so i've i 've suggested that um, you know, Canada must take some responsibility for that division because Canada created it. Yes. Right? Um, on the other hand, it's um, it's really the people of Six Nations who need to decide um, what, how they want to, who are their spokespeople, and how do they want um, responsibility for addressing the land claims to be allocated. You know, um, and so it seems to me that. Canada uh, needs to be uh, supportive of dialogue at Six Nations about that issue, you know, and um, there are a number of possibilities there where there could be a negotiator for Six Nations who reports both to the Confederacy and to the elected council, for example, or there could be involvement of both around the table if they, if they agree. Mm. Um, But that, that is a challenge and there will need to be, on both sides, at, at six nations, there will need to be an agreement amongst the community as to what the accountability, you know, path is in in supporting these negotiations. And in the same, and, and I make the same point about Canada and Ontario, each of whom says, "Well, we are not responsible mm-hmm. for any legal wrongdoing here." Mm-hmm. But if there is any legal responsibility, is the other government's fault one hundred percent, or the other government is one hundred percent responsible? Right. Um, Canada of course has, you know, under the, our constitution, uh, was allocated a a jurisdiction to deal with Indians and lands reserved for Indians. Um, but Ontario has been the beneficiary of a lot of the, um, uh, the Ontario has benefited from the taking of these lands, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Ontario and municipalities are now sitting on Mm -hmm. these lands. There are highways like highway six that are sitting on uh, uh, lands originally, um, within the, the Grand River tract. So you know, one could argue that both have, both Canada and Ontario have legal responsibilities. Ontario, because it's been enriched by the tickings of Six Nations lands, and Canada, if the allegations or any of the allegations are proved because they violated their trust duty to protect Six Nations lands and monies. So this, does, this is one reason why it's uh, more complicated. Um, to settle. Um, but we just have to find a way forward. It's been you know, more almost 40 years now since these right. plans were brought before the government. Right.
1: You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 1065 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you listen on the Radio Care Player Canada app, download those two coordinates, or one of those two, and then type in ELMNTFM and listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. My guest here on Moment of Truth is Michael Coyle, and he is an Indigenous law expert and law professor at the University of Western Ontario. We're talking about the situation and ongoing situation at Six Nations. Uh, Michael was brought in back in 2006 uh, for then what was the Douglas Creek Estates situation that developed uh, from the uh, then uh, Indian Affairs Minister Jim Prentice. Uh, to come in and, uh, and be a mediator and to uh, try to find do some fact-finding on this. Michael, you made some recommendations, as you've uh, alluded to, uh, in, in this that came out of that. I'm wondering also, though, since your involvement and now that we have this situation of Mackenzie Meadows unfolding, very similar, looks very similar in many ways to what happened back in uh, 2006 with the Douglas Creek Estates. Are are you surprised by this this happening now, and and what do you see that is similar and or different?
2: That's an interesting question. Um, I'm not surprised that there are continuing um, levels of extreme frustration within the community um, because of how long these grievances have remained outstanding without being um, settled according to rules that that Six Nations um, has accepted. So. You know, that level of, that length of time to not have what you believe are your legal rights, um, respected, um, inevitably leads to, to frustration. And if the negotiation table doesn't seem to be being effective and if litigation seems to be very slow, I, it's, it's understandable that some people, uh, well, that, that everybody involved would become frustrated. Um, there's an old saying uh, from a former Supreme Court of Canada justice that conflicts, unlike good wine, rarely improve with aging. <laughs> and it's true that conflicts just get more bitter, right? Um, mm-hmm. the longer they're out there. Um, I, I'm not sure I haven't, uh, I, I, I don't, I'm not um, directly involved in the current situation in any way. So I'm not sure to what extent um, the people who are protesting have the full support of, of, let's say, the Confederacy chiefs um, back in 2006, the chief, the Confederacy chiefs did issue a statement of support for the um, protest. Um, and that, that to me is a, a very important issue. I mean, we have, um, we have an outstanding obligation potentially to six nations as a people um, and presumably Six nations as a people, should be deciding how they wish to press you know press their rights um, so that issue uh, um, to me that's an important one there need the the, the creation of accountability at six nations and as I said within the crown as well, but for who is directing our 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 um our 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 tactics. Uh, to try to get these rights respected. And to me, there's some uncertainty about what, what's going on today, but that's just because I am not, mm. I'm not really familiar with the facts on the ground. I should say, I should add one thing, um, David, You've, you you referred to me as an expert in indigenous law. In, in one sense, I am, uh, I am an expert in the Canadian law as it deals with indigenous peoples. Mm. Um, but today uh, more than ever, indigenous law is used to describe the um, the laws of the indigenous peoples themselves. Mm. So, in this case, it would be Haudenosaunee law, right, right. Haudenosaunee understandings of their uh, treaty relationship with the Crown, with Britain originally. Um, and one of the things that was um, that I was honored by when I was there in two thousand and six was that I was invited to the longhouse. Mm. Of the Confederacy, and invited to speak to them and, and enter into a dialogue with them, um, and it was amazing to watch this traditional process of government. That is the way um, certain speakers from certain nations, the Cayuga, Oneida, Seneca, etc., spoke in a different, you know, formal ways, addressing each other as younger brothers and older brothers, depending on when they had entered into the Confederacy that is, Six Nations. And it was a really impressive, um, example to me of Indigenous law operating, the deliberations in accordance with their understandings of, um, their relationship to the land and and the way that they should be self-determining. Um, and, um, so for me as a, you know, a non-Indigenous Canadian, it was quite inspiring to see, well, here's a, here's another way that actually is authentic to this people, um, of trying to work through, um, government decision making. Right. And
1: I appreciate you pointing that out and making that, uh, that cl- clear. Uh, I, I, I really do appreciate that because um, as, as I'm sure, you know, maybe from that experience, you saw that uh, consensus at work, uh, which is what the Confederacy uh, believe they operate from. They don't vote. They have a consensus. And um, I think the, the, the other thing uh, in, in terms of Mackenzie Meadows when we talk about that difference and the the difference and what I'm talking about is that indigenous people generally uh, talk about is their connection to the land, the importance of the land. And and I'm sure you've been you were exposed to this idea that land is not seen in the same light. It's not something that you can even own or you have command over. It's something that you should be caring for and looking out after. Uh, th- does that enter into any of these conversations?
2: I'm, I'm sure that it does, David. Um, as I say, I'm not, I'm not there at the moment, but, um, and that suggests, you know, that, um, that, 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 that putting, having people sit around the table is the only way they're going to work these things, these kinds of issues out, both at Six Nations. Um, there may, there will be people at Six Nations, there are people at Six Nations who I'll have differing, different views on how land should be used and what the relationship is between the people and the land. And it is possible for them to find a consensus to become at one mind um, about how to move forward. If they sit around a table, you can find a, you can agree on how this land will be used um, in a way that doesn't betray anybody's values around the table. If you work hard, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a simple In a similar way, I I believe strongly that these kind of complications that you are raising um, strongly suggest that it would be helpful to have a mediator who's respected by all of the people around the table, or perhaps two mediators, co-mediating, but to create a safe space where all of the participants, um, crowns people, um, uh, the the community from Six Nations, can express their values and see if they can find a, a joint solution that respects their own values mm. um, and their own laws. Um, because it's, it's all too easy to to see that while there are currently there are differences of perspective, the question is how do we move forward from that? And um, I, I, I think dialogue is the better approach myself. If there's a real commitment to it from all sides. Mm. Um, and I think that's the only way that, Um, The issue you raised, David, is is going to be resolved. How how do we as a Six Nations community want to govern our lands moving forward or our relationship with our territory has to come from consensus at Six Nations, it seems to me.
1: Mm. Uh, One last question for you. You were brought in, as I mentioned, to the Douglas Creek Estates back in 2006 by the former minister of of Indian Affairs, uh, Jim Prentice. Uh, and you were appointed to uh, be a mediator and to do some fact finding uh, to try to find some options for to the resolution and the and the conflict. How ha- have any of those those um, from what you looked at has any of that been been looked at? Do you, do you know if anything has moved forward to finding a fact finding uh, a person for for getting this resolved?
2: Um, i I think that there had there was um, a real effort to take to do to move forward in some of the ways that i I suggested um, back in uh, around two thousand and six there was a a round table created with with quite serious representatives um, of all of the governments there um, i don't recall if they so what I had suggested was that The parties explore the possibility of creating one table to comprehensively address all of Six Nations land issues Um, that they see if they could find, as you've just said, an independent historical fact finder, a neutral person who wouldn't be discounted just because they were hired by one side. Mm. That they consider using mediation and that they consider ways of polishing the relationship or renewing the relationship between the Six Nations and the crown, which the Confederacy was interested in. I think that there were some efforts toward that, but obviously they've, um, um, they haven't, it hasn't been successful yet. My understanding is, um, and listeners may want to check this, but that Ontario has decided no longer to sit at the negotiation table. Mm. I'm not sure why, but that creates a big, a big hole in terms Mm. of trying to uh, find a comprehensive settlement. Right. Uh, But what you've asked is a a good question. If, uh, you know, how much are the, um, are the parties following those recommendations? And if they aren't, are they, why not? Are they following some better approach? Mm. So far as I know, um, parties have not, um, other than the settlement of one small um, piece of land, haven't been able to make significant progress around the table so far.
1: And it's most unfortunate because it is uh, continuing that, uh, um, that somewhat hostility within the community uh, especially within the communities of Six Nations and and Caledonia, who are neighbors, there's intermarriages. There's people that work within both communities. There's you know there's ongoing life back and forth uh, there. So, Michael, I want to thank you for joining me on the show. It's been a pleasure speaking with you.
2: Likewise, thank you, David.
1: You're very welcome. Michael Coyle is an expert in. Canadian law for Indigenous law, and and a law professor at the University of Western Ontario. He's been my guest here on Moment of Truth. We've been talking about uh, the Mackenzie Meadows situation and uh, how it somewhat related to the Douglas Creek Estates back in 2006. It's been a pleasure to have him on the show uh, from his perspective as someone that was involved back in 2006, and that was brought in as a mediator for that situation. And that is your show for today. I'm your host, David Moses. Thank you for listening to Moment of Truth each and every day. We'll see you tomorrow.
0: This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses.
4: Element. Element. Element FM.